Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst, author, and lecturer, Pamela Power. Trained as a classical musician, she studied music history and theory at the University of California, Los Angeles, and went on to become an accomplished cellist. After years of playing and teaching, she decided to study psychology and attended the California Graduate Institute, where she received her PhD. After becoming licensed as a clinical psychologist, she entered the training program at the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles, where she received a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst, in 1987. She served as, as their clinic director and later as their training director and currently teaches and supervises in the analyst training program. A member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, Dr. Power has articles published in the Journal of Jungian Theory and Practice, Psychological Perspectives, Spring Journal, and in the book Shared Realities, Participation Mystique and Beyond, edited by Episode 6 guest, Dr. Mark Winborn. She lectures nationally and internationally on a variety of topics, including the religious nature of the psyche, the archetype of sacrifice, contemporary issues, music, and film. Earlier this month, she presented a lecture, Distillation of Feeling in Traumatic Times, followed by a workshop on greed and stealing at the C.G. Jung Institute of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and they are the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Saturday, April 14th, 2018, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. Power. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me today. You trained at the Jung Institute in Los Angeles, and you had mentioned to me that you knew the original founders, the Kirsches and the Zellers, as well as Edward Edinger. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that with us. Well, yes, it was, um, I, I uh, came to Jung at quite a young age. I was already uh, in high school when I first began to read Jung oh, wow. and was so taken with, with Jung that I continued my uh, reading uh, as I was an undergraduate at UCLA and uh, found myself getting into a Jungian analysis um, so I did uh, as as a 20-year-old, and the Jungian group there was was still quite small, and the Institute and the Analytical Psychology Club were much closer, had a much closer affiliation than, than they do now. Um, and so there were Friday night lectures, and the analysts would be there, and the public programs uh, people and people like me could go. And so uh, I got to meet most of the analysts who were working at that time, including uh, James and Hilda Kirsch and uh, Max Zeller. I, I was in analysis with somebody who was in the tr candidate training program. And then later, I had the privilege of working with Max Zeller for a number of years before he died. And, um, and then uh, after Edward Edinger moved to uh, Los Angeles, I was able to work with him. But it was a very exciting time, a very alive time, because for several years they had uh, what was called uh, 
the Panarian Conferences. It was set up by a, a, a movie star who had a lot of money and was very interested in Jung, and he funded these conferences every year where they would bring in uh, luminaries in the Jungian world and also in you know physics and, and science and other fields to meet together for a week during the summertime and in various places, usually in uh, the uh, Pacific Palisades or Malibu. <clears throat> for instance, uh, several times uh, Marie-Louise von Franz came over, um, both to lecture to um, the Jung Institute, but also as part of the Panarian group. And it was just a very alive and exciting time. And it was very, it was so uh, um, heady for me to to be around these people, to yeah. hear someone like von Franz talk and give lectures that were later published that uh, I was so in awe of her. She was one of my early heroes, as well as um, um, Edinger and, and other people. So it was, uh, it was very exciting uh, to be there. And then, you know, things uh, uh, got bigger. And, uh, but by then I was in training and uh, it all began to change. So you, you said that you entered analysis when you were 20 years old? Yes. Yeah, yes. I started analysis when I was quite young, too. And mm -hmm. that's not typically the case, is it? No, no, it's definitely not. I was having psychological difficulties. I really needed to see a therapist. But I, since I knew about Jung, I found out that there was a Jung Institute and a Jung clinic where you could go and see um, you were interviewed and you had to go through a whole battery of tests and so on at that time. But if you were accepted into the clinic, you would be assigned to see one of the analysts. Mm -hmm. Well, when I applied, there was a six month waiting list and the, um, the then director of the clinic said, um, um, well, we don't want you to wait for six months. We really think you should see somebody sooner. And so they found me this this uh, person that was a candidate in the mm -hmm. training program at that time. And that's who I saw mm -hmm. for a number of years. But, but it was unusual uh, for someone my age to be in Jungian analysis. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then you decided to, you were a musician and you decided that you wanted to study psychology. So you had mentioned that you got your, a graduate degree specifically so that you could enter the training program at the Jung Institute to become a Jungian analyst because one needs a graduate degree, right? Right. My undergraduate was in music, although I had some kind of a sense that I might want to go into psychology later. So I made sure that I, my minor, I almost had a double major, but it ended up being a minor in psychology. So I had all the prerequisites that I needed to apply for graduate school. Mm -hmm. And when I applied, I really wanted, it was specifically to go into training and become a Jungian analyst. So I didn't want to go to UCLA or USC where it was more um, experimental, especially UCLA, right. which would be a natural for me since I went there for undergraduate, but it was about experimental psychology and so I found uh, the California Graduate Institute, which was uh, um, very clinically oriented. And so you got thrown into doing clinical work quite quite early, and you got excellent supervision and training and that, all those kinds of 
and the areas that were relevant. And so when I came out of graduate school, I could easily uh, go into practice and go into training. I see. Yeah, I too experienced uh, something similar. I was a psychology major at the University of Washington in Seattle, and it was all experimental. And I realized that that wasn't for me, but it gave me a great background. So yes, yes. Did you practice as a clinical psychologist before you trained to become a Jungian analyst? Well, it all kind of uh, it all kind of blended together because mm-hmm. I I um I did an internship. I did one internship for about a year out of uh, as I was finishing graduate school, and then I went and I became an intern at the Jung Institute, which hardly had an internship program at all. Okay. They sort of took people. Uh, if somebody showed up and said, "Hey, can I do an internship here?" They said, "Okay, yeah, we'll 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 kind of interview you." And so, I came in, and at that point, there were like maybe only one or two interns. And so, um, what they did in those days is to just throw you in with the first year candidates. Okay. So, myself and another uh, gentleman, we were put in with the first year candidates uh, and took first year classes with them. Um, and we saw clinic patients at the clinic and I got my hours for my license and, um, and that was it. That was how that works. So I was an intern first before I uh, joined Mm -hmm. the training program. Is it different today because you're still active with the Jung Institute in Los Angeles, correct? Yes. It's, it's very different today. It's very different. First of all, there's a, the internship program is very separate and that's what I did when I came on as clinic director. I said, "Hey, hey, we can really um, boost our t- internship. There are people out there who want to get hours for licensure, who are dying to to find an internship with a Jungian influence, a Jungian right. bent to it." Yeah. So I I was really uh, very influential in changing the internship program to what it was when I was an intern to what it is now, essentially, where it's a full-blown internship. People come from Pacifica Graduate Institute and all the local schools around who are interested in Jung and who want a Jungian internship, Mm -hmm. um, who are in a Jungian analysis, and they're thinking about maybe going into Jungian training. Uh, And they have their own program, their own case colloquium, and their own requirements. Um, so yeah, it's quite different now. And then what about the training? Are you involved with the training program? Yes. Yes. Um, and then the training program is quite separate. You apply to that. Um, and the, and the candidates have their own case colloquium, their own classes they take. Um, but there are events, there are events where they come together, the interns and the candidates. Um, and I was I was very, I've been very involved with both the internship program and the uh, candidate training program since I was certified. But after I left my post as clinic director, I became more, more uh, involved with uh, strictly with training, being on the certifying board, the admissions committee and uh, the training committee and so on. And then eventually I became Mm -hmm. training director. One of the topics that comes up frequently on this podcast is what the requirements are to become a Jungian analyst and how Jungian analysts differ from clinical psychologists, say, or other kinds of psychologists. And so right now, what 
are the requirements to enter the training program in Los Angeles to become a Jungian analyst? I know that having your own personal analysis is necessary. What are the hour requirements? I believe it's 150 hours. Mm Mm-hmm of analysis. Now and that's, you have to, bef- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's yeah, yeah, bef- but in order before, to apply. Okay. In order to apply, you have to have 150. I'm, I may be wrong, but it's used to be 200. I believe it came down to 150. I may be, it may be down to hundred now. I know they've been lowering it because the other analytic programs require no analysis, which is horrible. You enter, I'm sorry. Which if you is ask me. which? Well, it well it doesn't uh, for us it doesn't make sense because we believe that you have to sort of know from the inside out what it is to be in Jungian analysis before you can really think about becoming a Jungian analyst. But there is there is conflict about it because um, the other analytic institutes in Los Angeles don't require any. Uh, analysis before. I mean, they they certainly interview their candidates uh, quite thoroughly to to determine whether they are appropriate for analytic training. Um, and so we've compromised a little bit and come down from 200 hours, I think, to maybe 150 or 100 hours. But you have to not only have an experience of your own Jungian analysis, but you have to be in Jungian analysis while you're going through the application process. And so while you're training, you you need to be analyzed. And so there are more hours required. Yes. Yes. It's considered the the real pillar of uh, and most important aspect of training is your own personal analysis. Yes. and, And for that reason, I believe that the number of hours should be increased and not decreased. Right. Right. But we, we, we all have to, we all are, are, are pressured by by collect by collective pressures and uh, since our we we don't want to you know at one point it's, one of the differences is that when I was around the Jung Institute um, in the early days it was such a it was considered such a fringe kind of collection of characters mm-hmm. and uh, um, it was like the people that came to the Jung Institute well they they just didn't fit in any place else and that's why they came and uh we were a collection of quite quite uh interesting and varied characters sometimes we got along really well and sometimes we didn't at all and there was a lot of fighting because uh there was such a uh wonderful individuality among the people yes there and I'm, you know, I mean, all the old, the, the beginners too, you know, the Kirsches mm-hmm. and the Zellers and everybody was sort of uh, fighting, but they all had to get along because they were this kind of uh, 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 kind of outsider group. Well, that has evolved tremendously, and the institute has wanted to, or the Jungian groups, both uh, in LA and elsewhere, have wanted to feel like they are more mainstream. And so have acceded to a lot of collective uh, pressures to uh, be more in line with, um, you know, collective. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the big uh, conflicts many years ago was whether we were going to qualify to give CEUs mm-hmm. to our public programs, continuing education credits to for our public programs, for our training program and all of that. And there was some conflict about it because... We didn't want to bow under to to the demands that the 
the organizations that certify us as a CEU provider. And there was a, there was some conflict about it because we we want as part of us part of us I felt that way part of me we wanted to preserve our our status as doing what we felt we needed to do right um, and not give in to you know behavioral like like some of the learning objectives you know please you uh, the ch- if you finish this seminar you will be able to you know, describe three ways that, you know, depression is treated, you know, that kind of very more superficial approach. Right. But in the end, we we gave in and we do do that. We do give CEUs for our training program, for our classes, for public programs, for case colloquium and so on. And uh, I think it's benefited us in the long run, but um, it's been a loss uh, on the other end. So, yeah. It's been a compromise, and we thought we really had to do to survive in today's world. It's got to be a very difficult to balance that because um, I see that. I see the Jungian community becoming watered down, and it concerns me because I learned a lot in my analysis that made sense to me as to why I didn't fit into these other schools and these other organizations. And you know, it changed my life. It it helped me understand myself and the world a lot better. And then to see that kind of break down and the, the caving into the collective, it's like, wait a minute, no, 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 that's not what this is about. So I will, will fight to preserve the original ways and do what I can. And, um, you know, I, it's not always popular. And I, I don't mind that. So, yeah, I, it's been, I've lived, having been in the Jungian world for a long time, Mm -hmm. I have seen these pressures and changes and I've been on uh, different sides of it at different times. And I was very much on the side of preserving the, the specialness that Jungian training and Jungian psychology had to offer and not wanting to water it down. I was fighting watering it down. And then I, and then I came to to realize, like some of the books that came out that I had a problem with because I felt it was really watering down Jungian psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I I didn't like them, and I was you know kind of you know kind of at times say uh, kind of bad things about them. Right. But now, but then I came to realize that some some of those books and some of the the outreach and so on actually. In a, in a in the long ra- uh, long run, has served Jungian psychology by by having people kn- know it. I mean, I right. was fortunate that someone gave me uh, the undiscovered self to read when I was a, a, a senior in high school. Mm. Um, but um, these days, how do you how do you come to know Jung? They don't they don't teach it in colleges anymore. You rarely come in contact with it unless somebody hand t- uh, happens to hand you a book or tells you about it or or um, something happens. And so I think in a way, um, people come to our, our public programs. And maybe they come in order to get CEUs and they are curious about what we're doing and they they get hooked yeah. and they start coming to more to more and more lectures and they find something very meaningful to, in uh, in what we have to offer. 
uh, and then they decide they want to get into Jungian analysis, and then they get into Jungian training. And so I now have come to really appreciate um, even some of the programs we put on that I think are very watered down Jung uh, end up being um, ways that people can actually discover Jung. So I've come to appreciate that other side uh, so I kind of, as they say, hold, you know, hold the opposites yes. and, and appreciate the value of of uh, holding uh, onto what Jung was really about, mm-hmm. the core core Jungian, um, not beliefs, I don't mean uh, to treat it that way, but mm-hmm. what Jung was really about in the deepest yeah. sense and to hold onto that value while finding ways to uh, let how, to help people connect with that if it's meant for them. Yes, I agree. And it's interesting that you mentioned the book because recently I purchased Jung's collected works, the digital version on Kindle so that I can have, I mean, to have all, they don't have 19 and 20, but the first 18 volumes on my iPhone and on my iPad. And so I was going through my books because I travel a lot. It's more convenient for me. Um, I have it everywhere I go and I'm standing in line at Whole Foods and I don't want to get <laughs> irritable. You know, I, I'll open up a book on my phone and read. And when I'm at the gym, I have my iPad with me. So I have the collected works everywhere I go. And so I was going through my books and I have um, a, I had a paperback, the thick paperback called The Portable Jung. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes. The one with, uh-huh. yeah, Joseph uh-huh. Campbell wrote the, yes. I think he edited the volume. <clears throat> so there is, on my running route, there is a Boy Scouts book donation box. It's kind of like give a book, take a book. Yes. yes. And I put the portable Jung in there. And I took a photo of it with my phone because it has a glass door um, and I Mm -hmm. propped Jung up and I took a picture of it and I put it on social media and it got such a nice response from people that, you know, I don't know who wound up with it because when I ran by it yesterday, it was gone. Um, (laughs) It's it's out there somewhere in somebody's hands, hopefully somebody young. That's very good. That's very good. Yes, I like that. Uh-huh. So I do want to talk about you, but I have to, because I'm going to get emails if I don't, I have to ask you about Edinger. And he is such an, I think, an enigmatic figure that he has a bit of a, I don't know, he just has this mysterious air about him. And I think that there's so much that I don't know about him. And I was wondering if you because you knew him personally, and were, was he your analyst? Yes, he was my analyst wow. for um, um, about twenty years. Yes. Uh-huh. What can you tell us? Well, I'm. Uh, can I ask you when when you say enigmatic, what what can you say what that refers to? Well, I hear I hear things about him, and there's it just seems to be. You know, he was a psychiatrist, he was an MD, he was married, he wasn't married, where did he come from? I I just never got really clear on him. And I don't know, he just seems like this mysterious figure to me. And maybe it's because of the things that I had heard about him when I first became interested in Jung, and it was like, ooh, Edinger. So. Well, um, I think part of the reason why you uh, one doesn't know his more personal details and so on is that he didn't think they were very relevant. Mm. 
he was a little bit like Jung in the sense that his life was really about the psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't feel it was, he didn't feel that he didn't want to be understood. I think what I would have said is I think uh, Edward Edinger is often misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, he was such a, such an introverted man. And, um, and, uh, and when he discovered Jung, he fairly quickly made it his life work to mm-hmm. be devoted to uh, understanding and, um, and helping others to understand uh, what Jung was about. Uh, first, he had to understand himself, and so he went through his own rigorous training and analysis and so on. But, and he, 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 um, <clears throat> he said this in a seminar, so, but he was talking about the... Um, um, at some one of the seminars, I, I went to all the seminars he gave in Los Angeles, uh, that he rather identified with uh, with uh, the Apostle Paul, um, who um, he wasn't so much against Jung at the beginning and then had a conversion. But once he discovered Jung, he, he was like Paul. He wanted to go about the business of of telling people about the good news of Jung, so to speak. Uh, and so his all his all his books and lectures and talks are about helping people to understand Jung in depth. And because Jung was uh, such a feeling intuitive, that sometimes you know you read some of Jung's most um, profound later works, like in Alchemy, and mm-hmm. you can start one paragraph and you don't at the end of the paragraph you don't know where. Really, what did, what did this man say? <laughs> you have to read it many, many times. Yeah. Well, Edinger was more of a thinking sensation type. Mm. So Edinger could, could uh, put things into uh, paradigms and put things into uh, ways that could be more easily accessed. Now, some people have a problem with that, that they felt that Jung was, that Edinger was too, too, uh, use paradigms and use that kind of clear sensate thinking uh, and to a, to a detriment. But I think overall he did a great service. I think yeah. uh, anatomy of the psyche is, is a treasure. And uh, I recommend uh, everybody read that because uh, you, he takes you into alchemy and understanding the alchemical images in a way that is uh uh, in a way, a good thing to read before you get into Jung's uh, more serious works like Mysterium. So, but I think uh, Edinger is misunderstood um, in that he comes across maybe in his lectures or in his uh, books as being uh, too one-sidedly uh, thinking or cerebral and so on. And my personal experience, what he was not like that at all. He was very big-hearted and very warm and very magnanimous. He was so magnanimous in his outlook toward me. And I think he can come across in some places as not that way. But uh, um, uh, people who knew him and had a personal experience of him would talk about him and that that he he was was very big-hearted. Now, I want to ask you, I don't know how to put this, when you were talking about Edinger wanting to kind of spread the news of Jung, I can totally relate to that. 
But what I'm hearing, because I, as I often say, I'm surrounded by skeptics, what would you say to the criticism that's out there about kind of, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm going to be using the right words here, worshiping somebody, having a blind allegiance to them, putting them up on a pedestal. And I, when people sometimes accuse me of that because they think, oh, you're obsessed with Jung and you're, you know, this is a religion for you. And, you know, it's, it's dangerous to be worshiping somebody. And (laughs) I don't see myself as worshiping Jung. I'm interested in his work and what he had to say. I think it was brilliant. I think he was ahead of his time. He lived a long life. He worked his entire life. He understood things and spent, I think he was fortunate enough to spend so much time on his work. He had the support of his family and his colleagues and his friends. And so, and he could travel. And so he had the resources to investigate and uh, encounter all different kinds of people. So that's why I'm so interested in his work, because I totally respect what went into it. But what would you say if somebody were to hear you describe, you know, what Edinger was kind of devoted to? Do you see where I'm coming from? Yes, I do. I do. And I think it's a very, a very important issue. Okay. Um, I think it's a very important issue. It's very difficult to tease apart um, what is kind of blind hero worship between what is uh, a recognition of, of value and wanting to, um, to follow and honor that value, not in a blind way, because mm-hmm. there's a way that worship can be a kind of defense against uh, the real experience. You know, there's uh, this idea that um, <clears throat> that one can, rather than really try to understand uh, somebody, one worships somebody. Now that may sound paradoxical, but it's it's a it's it can be it can be a defense. <clears throat> there are people that there are people that kind of worship Jung and who don't understand him. Mm-hmm. So because okay. they either find it really threatening to really really understand what Jung was about, uh, or they they don't have the ability to understand what Jung was about, and so they they do worship him in a kind of religious way. I don't have a problem with that actually. I don't I don't I think if wherever people find meaning, yeah. um um I mean I don't have a problem with people who are religious and who really who really believe uh uh whether they're, you know, Christians or 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 Jews or whatever. I don't have a problem with that. Um but I think um being accused of a kind of uh, blind worship. And Edinger would often say, he would talk about um, that an analysis should not be about indoctrination. It should be about helping the individual uh, get to the deepest level of experience with his or her psyche as possible. Mm. Now that's easier said than done. Yeah, it really is. Um, um, and, be, and because um, 
one can read things that Jung said or Edinger said and so on because Edinger was so um, so valued Jung that it, it can look like he was um, worshiping him rather than um, that he really understood him and wanted other people to understand him at, as deeply as they could. But it's a, it can be it can be a very a tricky gray area in there and it can look like um it could look like from the outside like one is uh a hero doing a hero worship when one is uh so deeply valuing something mm-hmm. now i don't i don't have a problem i you see i think um i sir i have my critical I don't mean critical in sort of terms of um, being, you know, criticizing, but having a critique, being able to critique where I thought Jung uh, missed the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a problem with c- critiquing Edinger about where I think he missed the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't um, let those critiques dismantle my deep valuing of Jung and Edinger and my yeah. experience with Edinger. So, but these are, these are tricky, these are tricky areas to really make, make careful discernments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned that because that's one of the things that I was discussing recently is that I see this, I've been seeing this quite often where if somebody catches somebody out on one thing, they throw the whole person out because right, of one right. thing. Yes. W- what would you say about that? Well, I think it's uh, it's it's convenient. I mean, it it makes it means you don't have to think about them anymore. Um, if I can find something wrong about somebody, um, then I'll take the the part as the whole, and I'll say, oh well, I don't like what he said about that, so therefore I don't have to listen to anything else he said about that. And it means that my lazy shadow gets uh, carries the day. It means I don't have to. I don't have to pay attention anymore, mm. um, and I, I've done that. I, I've, I've caught myself doing that with certain writers and so on because I didn't want to have to be bothered with reading them, and then I have to go back and and um, uh, do the work down the road because I was wrong about something. <laughs> you know, Edinger talks about this. I think he talks about it in his. Um, in his American Jungian films, which I um, haven't watched in a while, but he talks about it in places that are that are um, uh, one can widely read. So I'm not saying any, saying anything that's that's private. But he found his life at one point really quite uh, meaningless. He could not find a reason why he was doing what he was doing, which he was uh, he was practicing internal medicine. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't, um, he just found his life uh, meaningless and, um, I don't say boring, but just, and uh, he happened to come across Jung through Ira Prograff and through the uh, journal journal working. Yes. You think he did some, I don't know whether he went to a Prograff workshop or he did it on his own, but that's how he heard about Jung and he started reading Jung. And um, he woke up one morning, uh, here he was, you know, a practicing internal medicine a physician and said, I know what I need to do. I need to become a Jungian analyst. Mm. It was one of those um, 
powerful kind of intuitive insights and epiphany. It was like a, like a, like a, like a St. Paul, uh, uh, on the road to Damascus, you know, mm-hmm. epiphanies. I see. And then he had to undo his life. He had to go back to do a residency in, uh, psych- psychiatry. He had to go, uh, he w- worked at Rockland St- state hospital in New York and, um, did a residency in psychiatry and, um, to become, uh, able to practice as a psychiatrist in, uh, in New York state. Mm-hmm. And then he got into analysis in, in uh, New York and, uh, and then uh, went into training. Clearly, I, I haven't read much Edinger yet. Uh, when I was at Inner City Books in Toronto, Daryl Sharp handed me a copy of An American Jungian, which he published um, about Edinger. And I, I so mm-hmm. I have that and some of his other books. Actually, those were the first books that Daryl gave me because he felt that they were so important. So I know we can go on and on with stories about others, but I would like to get to your work. Recently, earlier this month, actually, you gave a lecture called Distillation of Feeling in Traumatic Times in Santa Fe, and I'm very curious as to what that was about. Yes. Um, you know, I, 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 um, that title came to me, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't question it, but I realized um, well, I, I realized later because people asked me when they saw the title, what on earth are you talking about? What on earth are you, <laughs> you, were you about? And they see the title. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm taking so much for granted when I put that title out there because, you know, having been immersed in alchemy for as long as I have been, I think everybody knows what distillation means. It, it, it's a, it literally means, you know, you, when you distill something, you, you, um, you know, like you di- like distilled water, you know, you, you heat water up and it, and it, it, it condenses into another container and you get this purified water. So what I'm really talking about is a kind of a purification process, but I'm using it more in an alchemical sense. And I use the word feeling in a way I was being provocative because, you know, we use the word feeling all the time. We toss it around mm-hmm. and we don't really, it, it means something different. And I was really using feeling um, the way Jung meant feeling, which is an evaluation. You know, Jung, for, for Jung, feeling, he differentiated feeling from affect and feeling from emotions. And feeling, he said, was a, was a rational function like thinking. And feeling evaluated the importance of something to somebody. So you, like one of the four functions, that function of feeling doesn't mean an emotion. It means an evaluation. Right, right. Now, I don't mean to think that we should be very exacting about how we use all these words, mm-hmm. but we, but we, but to... Uh, so that word was a little bit provocative, um, but um, what I was about with this talk was, it, it, the genesis of this talk was um, what I was going through beginning in the early 2016 as the election for president was heating up and underway and the primaries and the so on. And um, I happened to read a book by Julian Barnes, who's a British writer that you may have heard of, 
He's a British novelist, mostly. And he wrote a novel that was based on the life of, of Dmitry Shostakovich. I know it sounds like I'm going, I'll come back on this in a second. <laughs> but I read the book. It's called The Noise of Time by, by Julian Barnes. It was based on the life of Dmitry Shostakovich. And what he described in that book were episodes in Shostakovich's life that were impacted by by composing uh, during the realm of terror um, imposed by Joseph Stalin. Mm. And um, I was very, um, I was very impacted by that book. I, I was, since I, I like Shostakovich's music very much and I like Julian Barnes very much. Um, and I thought, my gosh, are we possibly going to enter into a, a very difficult kind of uh, st- uh, period in the United States that is in some way some kind of analogy to I, I think I had this intimation yeah. that I'm I'm spelling out more now than I had at the time but I was I was I was quite uneasy during 2016 even though I kept checking all the polls and thinking no 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 Trump can't win Trump can't win um, um, and then as the year progressed it seemed like a possibility. So I began to notice the books that came out, the the movies that were, that came out that were released, the music that came out. And I kind of, uh, like I kind of put my head down, uh, down into the, uh, into the kind of collective psyche of the time and watched what was being done, uh, in movies and books and music and art. Um, and so I collected some of the, the things that impacted me and put them together in a presentation. And so, for instance, I talked about Shostakovich. I played a part of a movement that he wrote after Stalin came in and threatened to mm-hmm. shut him down as a composer. Oh. I played movie clips from Moonlight, which I felt showed a particular kind of very refined feeling sense a feeling value about um, the authenticity of human contact and i played some clips to to show what i was talking about i played movie clips from the movie arrival those two movies moonlight and arrival came out were released shortly after trump was elected of course they've been in process of being of being made, right. uh, and I used Arrival to to d- show the need for a different kind of feeling and a different kind of thinking that maybe could be coaxed into um, coaxed into more reality by living in a difficult time, living in a very challenging time. Um, that say that the Trump administration may provoke. And I wanted to, to implicitly encourage people to rather than be in a, a very polarized position, either to be very actively anti-Trump or um, actively pro-Trump or in get in, involved in the polarization, that I wanted to offer not to tell people but to offer a third way which is to 
kind of go down and to be thinking and feeling about what's going on, why it's going on, and to access, I think, a kind of future consciousness. I think there's uh, different kinds of consciousness that are that are that are on the horizon, and I wanted to kind of stimulate the the uh, the uh, the listener and the observer of my presentation to perhaps stimulate that into awareness and to have a discussion about it. Uh, not only did I do those movie clips, but at the end I then talked about uh, about rap music and I talked about Kendrick Lamar, who is uh, an outstanding uh, hip hop rap artist uh, who I happen to admire greatly, and I played one of his uh, one of his songs and talked about what he represents in our time and how he is taking um, a certain experience. Um, and talking about it in a very uh, psychological, reflective, very thoughtful and very feeling way. And I played uh, one of his songs and talked about him. Would Um, you tell us which song it was? Yes, it was um, uh, from the, because also in in 2017, the album called Damn, D-A-M-N, uh, was released and it has received multiple awards. Um, and the, the song I played was called DNA. I played that, I played the video, which is on YouTube. Uh, it's the video for, for DNA. And, um, so, and then I, I referred to, um, I didn't really, I didn't have time. And when I first wrote this paper, I was under uh, time constraints when I presented it in Minnesota at the uh, Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts last October. Um, but I would have gone, I would have also talked about George Saunders' book, Lincoln and the Bardo, uh, because that book actually um, evoked in me a, a feeling place, a feeling, thoughtful feeling place in me where I thought, okay, I can, I can live through this next period of time, however long it takes. I can live through it after because I've I've read this book. This book made a big impact on me, Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. And the other thing I would have brought in more, but I didn't have time, which is to take it back to Jung. And Jung talks in his letters, I think particularly his letters to uh, Herbert Reed, about the coming guest. Oh yes. Yeah. And I don't know if you, that's familiar to you, but I, I really need to pick that up and put that into any future version I do of this work that I'm doing now. Yeah, I think that I just want to interrupt you here. I, I interviewed Ross Lockhart. And yes, uh, I think that Ross he Lockhart. Me- yes. Yeah, I think he you mentioned, mentioned that, that too. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, and that Jung, you know, he didn't know. He didn't know what it was. He, 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 didn't, he, didn't, he didn't necessarily think it was going to be a good thing. He was uh, actually pessimistic about it, and one can't tell whether he's, you know, when one is pessimistic in one's old age, one doesn't know whether, you know, what one's pessimistic about, but because a lot of people get very pessimistic about the future in their old age. Um, I'm not there yet. I don't, I feel like the coming guest could be something really quite, um, possibly really quite revolutionary and good which doesn't mean we're, we're not in for a hell of a time getting there right right and we may never see that but 
But I, I, my own kind of uh, intimations and and intuitions about it is that um, there's a there's a future consciousness if we can survive our our powerful self-destructive uh, forces. Um, that this future consciousness is um, uh, is really qu- something quite revolutionary to to what we're living in now. And I think in Jung's, you know, I've 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 I taught Mysterium Conjunctionis, which is one of his latest works. Mm-hmm. I taught that many times at the Jung Institute, and every time I taught it, it was like a new book. And I saw more and more where Jung had these visionary intuitions about a future consciousness. And um, uh, they 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 aren't they aren't obvious on first readings, but they're they're more obvious uh, with 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 more readings. Some of you know Mysterium is such a mixture. Some of it is is very kind of um, what I call conventional Jung. It's very um, it's 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 too too a little too reified. It's a little too um, um, trying to find the right word without being derogatory. I don't mean to be derogatory at all, but it's 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 um it's it's like Mysterium has kind of old Jung and new Jung, old mm. Jung and 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 forward forward looking wow. visionary prospective Jung. That that's interesting. You mentioned that. I'm going to keep that in mind because I'm always drawn to that volume. I that volume sticks out to me like a sore thumb all the time. I'm just so drawn to it. So I, I love your comments about that. So uh, I don't know if that really tells you what I was about with that presentation, but it it um, it's uh, it stimulated a very um, uh, lively uh, response in Santa Fe where we had really had a, a long time to discuss it, including people who really had, a, had problems with it because it was stimulating in a way that that was kind of unbearable to them, um, because because uh, many people really uh, need and want, and I, I don't have a criticism of this, by the way, when I say this, mm-hmm. they need things to be very contained yeah. and safe. Yeah. They need things to be very safe and not provocative, um, and other people uh, a craving for being provoked into into uh, into feeling and thinking in in new ways because they without realizing it their old ways of thinking and feeling have kind of have kind of uh, they've gotten too old they've gotten too a little too too stale a little too much and they need to be broken out of uh, um, those ways of thinking um, you know, my, one of my uh, one of my colleagues in Interregional, you may have heard of her, Lynn Lynn Cowan. Oh yes, I love her. I actually got to meet her and attend um, her presentation on Seabiscuit. Yes, right. Well, she she once uh, uh, said to uh, to me and some other people in Interregional, she said, you know, the danger of getting old is not hardening of the arteries; it's mm. hardening of the concepts. Oh. And of course, we all just crack up when we hear because she has, you know, Lynn had this has this way of just saying these just outrageously funny, yes. funny things and putting things in funny ways. But 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 it's true that we we get too comfortable with thinking about things in certain ways and feeling about them. I always want to 
I want us want to include them that we feel feel and think about comfortable ways. Not that we need to blast them to smithereens and and and, um, but we need to to evolve them. And and even Jung needs to be evolved in a certain way to to really take the best of Jung, his most profound um, insights and his own deep feelings and intuitions um and 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 kind of carry those forward not what he says literally for instance i gave a whole seminar on the animus uh last year to the to the trainees um and um i think you know his ideas about the animus are in many ways very um uh outdated and insulting and and problematic and so i try to present those and be respectful of what he was doing during his time and how he was really trying to trying to come to to come to grips with the psychological phenomena that he was confronted with day in and day out in his consulting room but now it's time to really uh to really move beyond that and really think about animus and anima in in much more evolved ways. Yeah, I would I would love to actually hear that talk you gave and with that subject, I I don't know, I don't get angry and I don't get offended. I just realized that that's what the thinking was at the time. I I put it in the context of that era. And so I I can't blame him and I just had a insight when you were talking about what Lynn Cowan said, tying back to the beginning of our talk about how you entered Jungian analysis at a very early age, and I did as well. And what if, because as you were talking, I was thinking about how my analysis changed and changed my, I don't know if I want to say changed my beliefs, but it really helped me change my thinking in that I was more open to things and not as judgmental of things. And I was just more accepting of things that were taboo or forbidden. Um, So if, as we get older, our concepts become more hardened, wouldn't it be a little bit easier to have our analysis earlier in life when we're more malleable that way? Uh, For me, my early analyses, it was important that um, that they sort of were able to sort of tell me how things are. <laughs> I needed that at that point. And so those analyses were were much more like that. And by the time I got to Edinger, I needed somebody that that was more flexible. Um, you know, my first two analysts who were were feeling types and um that's what i needed then i needed somebody who could uh give me good access and and teach me about feeling because um, my feeling had been so damaged in my uh, upbringing but i'm really a thinking type uh who values feeling and when I got to Edinger, I suddenly got my thinking was validated and I got to understand what wonderful thinking can look like. And he challenged me in many ways to open up my thinking, but also my, my feeling because he had wonderful feeling that wasn't obvious on the surface, but he had very deep feeling. Um, 
And I got to see how that operated and how those two work together. You know, Jung talks about, and some people think that thinking and feeling are mutually exclusive, but they aren't. They really, just like sensation and intuition, they really, at some point, deep in the unconscious, they they really blend into each other. Thinking, thinking and feeling are the same way. They blend into each other at the deep level. So when you get deeply, deeply into the unconscious, you can't tell the difference between thinking and feeling. So uh, I needed I needed the opening uh, to happen to me uh, later in my analysis. But I but it, interesting the way you're talking is that I think that we need different things at different times, mm-hmm. um, and one needs a good a good uh, a good grounding in in basic Jung. And people people need, do need to know what Jung really thought about the anima and the animus, and uh, why he really thought that. I mean, even now. I can see a situation where a, I can see a woman with a man and so on, and I can think, I can think, wow, that woman is really animus possessed. <laughs> and I don't usually think that way because I don't think in those kinds of uh, stereotyped concepts. But sometimes they actually, they actually are true in this day and age with certain situations. So I think that we can add on. We add on ways of understanding thing, the concepts like anima and animus. Like like Hillman did, like like James Hillman did. Originally, your lecture in Santa Fe was to be about greed, and that's what first caught my eye. And you have a presentation, right, called the Paradox of Greed. The original title was the Painful Paradox of Greed, and when when people needed to make a brochure, they wanted to shorten titles for various reasons, and so well. Or it was an accident. I don't know. But I think the painful was a very important part of that painful paradox of greed. That's what caught my eye. And then your workshop is called Greed and Stealing in Our Lives. And I would love to talk about that because, well, I don't even know what you talked about, what you used as examples, but um, I'm so curious as to what you have to say. Well, I ended up not talking about stealing in okay. that workshop um, because, anyway, it, everything got shifted around. I really focused on greed for the workshop, and it mm-hmm. was plenty. I had my stealing material there that I could have gone into, but I didn't. We we had plenty to talk about with greed. But first, um, we gave a series at the public programs here in L.A., um, I'm on the public programs planning committee, and we decided to do a a series on affects and everybody around the table sort of jumped in and said what affect they would like to have talked about. And people said, you know, you know, anger, fear, uh, so on. And I said, greed, I don't know why I said greed, but I thought, well, you know, <laughs> uh, it's probably a good, a good one given what we're observing in the world. And then it turned out I was stuck with it. <laughs> so I had to then, do my own research and thinking about well, what what what's greed and then the more i i got into it the more i thought about it as an internal state to feel greed and how we don't want to feel greed we don't want to feel greedy and then if you say greed is a concept greed is just a concept but if you say greedy well that has more that has more feeling to it or more emotion to it right and then greediness and so on, um, <clears throat> that one has a reaction to it. Well, I don't want to feel like I'm greedy, you know. 
And then if I say, well, we're all greedy, where are we greedy? And we can all, we can find some place where we feel greedy. And what does greed mean? You know, it just means that we, we want more than we need. Uh, we desire more. We want more than we need. We want to, we want more. And that that's a kind of a human condition. It's kind of a human built in. We can say it's archetypal. Um, and that's what's getting us into trouble in the world. We, we, you know, we don't know, we don't know when is enough. We don't know when we have enough money, enough food, enough books, enough. We don't, we don't know. We can't tell. Do you see that as more of an issue in our culture than it is generally around the world? Is it an American thing? Well, I think one could make a case for it um, that we have the resources to make our greed more visible. Mm. Um, I'm not so sure that you wouldn't see it everywhere in every culture. I think it's been controlled. Uh, a greed is controlled by by forces like governments and by religions. That's why greed, of course, is one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, it's in order to clamp down on the impulse for uh, for greed. And it was not only one of the seven deadly sins. It was it was a um, it was a mortal sin. So that the people the you know the people that were guilty of greed were were severely punished in the afterlife. But then, so what's going on psychologically with greed? Well, as an internal, as an internal event, uh, greed is, uh, is always kind of met with a counterforce, a counter. It's met by an inhibition. Uh, it's met by, um, being greedy in a kind of opposite way, like, uh, becoming uh, anorexic psychologically or literally anorexic what do you mean by that well um I'm, i talked a lot about um, about psychological anorexia mm -hmm. uh, which is not my term i got that from reading one of the uh one of the psychoanalytic writers who wrote about this, but psychological anorexia, which is that you, you deprive yourself, you deprive yourself of, of things, of achievements. Uh, you deprive yourself of opportunities. You deprive yourself of things in order to, um, uh, to not feel, not to not feel your own uh, greediness. Now the trouble with greediness is that greedy, greediness is inextricably mixed up, according to to what I came across in my uh, investigations. It's inextricably mixed up with a kind of zest for life. You want life. You want to be in life. You want to live life. You want to be in it, and so you're kind of greedy for life. Isn't that a good thing? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. But how much is too much? Okay. So what's what's going on with us where we want more than we, we need? Are we afraid of the lack? We're afraid of the shortage? So we want to kind of stock up? Right, right. We want to stock up because we don't know if we're going to, if we're going to uh, run out, 
run out tomorrow. We're Mm -hmm. not going to have enough. Mm -hmm. Now, how does sharing factor into this? Because I have a friend, a very close friend who is always giving things away in not not in that he's trying to get rid of everything. But he's, if you mention that you like something, he'll give it to you, or he'll send it to you, or he'll send you one. Do you know what I mean? He's he's she just shares everything he has. He shares food. He shares his house. He just shares. Now there's got to be something going on with that too. Is that because you you feel that there's something there? You feel there is something going on with well, on with I that. I always think there's you're... something going on with everything. <laughs> there's a, there's always something underneath everything, right? So I'm right now in this phase where I see everything as a compensation. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that, is that a compensation for greediness? Well, I'm, I'm well, going to do the opposite. Well, you know, I, I understand that, that, uh, that that's a very um, worthwhile, uh, it's worthwhile to, to, to see things, everything as a kind of compensation. And I think that's uh, something to, to always be on the lookout for. But, but I, I meet people. Uh, I used to be suspect of people who were 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 very generous, generous with their time, generous with their money. Like, what what are they doing? Are they, you know? Because I don't feel that I'm I'm that generous. I'm not that stingy either. I'm sort of like in the middle someplace. And so I always was suspect of people who were very generous. But I over time, I've come to see that there are people. It's just it's really part of their nature. It's just kind of like who they are. And um, um, it's, it's not pathological. It's not a compensation. It's kind of like who they are. It's kind of, kind of like what makes them feel good. I feel good doing certain activities. Um, I feel good going out and running. I feel good listening to certain music. I feel good. Some people feel really good going over to their friend's house and helping them weed the backyard for an afternoon. Right. And I, I, I feel much less scrutinizing and much less judgmental about mm. certain personality characteristics. It doesn't mean I don't go through some kind of process right. about it and wonder about it. But um, So it feels good. Yeah. The household that I was raised in and the family I was raised in, everybody was always helping the neighbor, sharing with the neighbor. They would do things for us. We would do things for them. That's the way that it was. So it's a it's a culture it's a culture that one lives yes, in when one yes. does that right yeah and because now I I live in a condominium building and I find myself doing that with my neighbors and, yes and being drawn to the ones that that do that with me um but yet then I am greedy in certain ways very mm-hmm. greedy in that I do want more than my fair share yeah and like you just said I think it's important uh to access where we feel our our greediness or our, our compensations for it or our whatever we do we need to to feel it uh because it's it's an easy it's it's what i describe as one of the more pr- difficult to feel emotions because it can feel um shameful right right so if somebody accuses us of being greedy we get defensive and feel bad right instead of saying well yeah, you're right. I, I, I'm. I, I, that's I'm, where I, that's where my greediness lives. So then, how did you tie in stealing to this? They're actually quite related. Um, the way I the way I connected them, um, I tied it in to the. I, this is the crossover, which is that um, 
greediness. Um, and I got this from uh, Donald Winnicott. He was the one that put me onto this idea that greediness, uh, if you see a child that is displaying the uh, a, a kind of greediness, a child that um, you know takes too many takes too many pieces of candy mm-hmm. uh, at a party or does these things, which is close to stealing, you see. Uh, so so uh, the children who are displaying signs of greediness are also the ones that will steal. They'll steal money from the mother's wallet. They will, you know, steal things from their siblings. They will uh, do petty uh, uh, petty theft in the grocery store and they will steal things. And you say, well, they're they're trying to get attention and understand it that way. And uh, Winnicott said, no, if, it, if they're they're stealing something that they feel they feel greediness and they steal because they they're trying to get back something that they feel was was legitimate legitimately belonged to them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that kind of opens up into. The idea that uh, that that a lot of stealing comes from these kind of deep underground psychological kind of mechanisms and processes, and um, later on it be- become a very entrenched uh, disorder. But if if early en- enough on one can uh, understand what the genesis and what the origin of the stealing is about. Um, one can correct it by simply by understanding and by talking to the child or the teenager or the adult or whatever about what what the stealing behavior, what the greedy behavior is 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 about, and 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 therefore rather than having shame about it, it, it restores a kind of uh, legitimacy to to their emotional uh, behavior. Would you give some examples of what it could be about? Well, for instance, um, the, in the literature, um, the easiest ones to see and the easiest ones to actually cure are when a child is, um, you know, misbehaving, is stealing, uh, being messy, being a nuisance, being greedy for the attention of the parents and so on. Um, if you investigate what's really going on, you realize that there was, in some way, the child didn't get his or her fair share of of love for some reason, maybe out of control by the parents. What if uh, there was something uh, going on in the family where the uh, the mother's attention was diverted from the child for a number of years? Um, um, then if you talk to the mother and the mother is able to convey to the child, I think you're misbehaving. I think you're misbehaving and you're wanting my attention because you didn't get attention when you really needed it from me. Mm-hmm. You didn't get, you didn't feel like I loved you when you needed me. You needed me to feel that I loved you the most, which was when you were blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. and so on. And um, in the case material I read, it was astonishing how such simple things that were told to the children could be so like magically (laughs) um, uh, helpful to the child's misbehavior, to their stealing behavior, Mm -hmm. to their being, you know, greedy in the family and so on. How their 
<clears throat> becoming a nuisance. She, you know, they talk about the nuisance value that when a, a child becomes a nuisance, you have to understand what that's about. And I found that in my practice as a as an analyst that adult patients would find ways of becoming a nuisance to me. And rather than just calling them on it and saying, well, that's your shadow, you know, you need to, uh, um, you know, you're being a nuisance to me by, you know, not paying your check on time or not doing these things. I would rather try to understand what, what, why, what is this about? And sometimes I would locate that there was something about something that was going on that was a genesis for it. something actually happened during a certain part of their life. And I would be able to, at some point, talk to them about it. Uh, and it would, the nuisance behavior would, would uh, kind of go away without my even saying to them. Because the trouble was saying something like, you know, you're being a nuisance by not giving me the check on time, that it would, it would drive them into a shame, becoming, sh- feeling shame. Mm-hmm. And then it would, it would drive what was needing to be noticed and to be, to be addressed, it would drive it further down underground. On the internet, there seems to be, it's very easy to, I don't even know if stealing is the right word, to steal things. And I noticed my fury when I see something of mine someplace else that's not attributed to me. And the first thing I do is I remind myself well, a couple of things. I remind myself of all the times I've done that. <laughs> um, innocently thinking that it was no big deal. And so now I'm much more careful about that because it can be a big deal. We all pilfer and then we realize we've been stolen from um, and that it's ubiquitous. And well, what can I, is it something I can do? Well, I can be kind of more honest with myself. And that's the best we can do is be kind of honest and upfront with our own behaviors and motives. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking about something when you were talking about stealing and children. And I was thinking, okay, well, if this is kind of, were you saying that it is kind of human nature to do this because of whatever is underneath it, whatever wound is there? that we're going to do it. So do we kind of have to learn the rules or the laws or there's right and wrong? That's something that has to be learned or taught? Well, I don't think about terms of right or wrong or rules. I think in terms that a certain development of consciousness uh, creates a kind of self-correction in, in behaviors. You can say, well, it's a development of morals. But it does, in, in most people, it creates a, a correction. Not always. If somebody is um, has a very characterologically developed um, pattern of, I'm going to take what I want, and I don't care what anybody thinks about it, then there's nothing you can do about that. Well, the reason why I mention right and wrong and rules is because in this instance, this is illegal. You know, stealing is not legal. So insulting right. somebody is not illegal, but stealing is. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm wondering about the, you know, what do you do? Do, you, do we have to learn? Stealing is wrong and it's against the law. 
So we can't do it because the, the consequences are kind of di- disastrous, I guess, in some cases. Yeah, some some people that's, if, you know, just like there's the legal system, there's right and wrong, the right or wrong yeah, so uh, I didn't applicable? mean really psychologically <laughs> right or wrong, but just because stealing happens to be illegal, you know, greed is not necessarily illegal and and a lot of behaviors aren't, but stealing is. So I think that that's what makes it a little different when I think about it and it being different from greed. Right. Well, um, th- that's how it gets so complicated. And as I, when I presented this material, it opened up in so many different directions for instance, I started out my presentation, my, my workshop, what I gave in, in Santa Fe, by showing some of the clips on, on, uh, that are available on YouTube uh, about greed, which is uh, one of, you know, the greedy dog. There are all these versions of, of Aesop's fable, The Greedy Dog. And some of them are, are much more uh, kind of right or wrong, like one one video clip has the greedy dog and it shows this kind of, you already know he's kind of a bad dog as he takes his bone across the bridge and looks down. Well, there's another version of that story where the greedy dog has been an abused dog. He's being kicked around in the street and he's hungry and nobody cares about him. And so some um, nice butcher comes out and feels sorry for the dog and gives the dog a bone and the dog goes over a bridge and the dog thinks, my God, I'm de- I mean, you, the dog's reflective process, you can see it begin to kick in. He says, you can almost hear him thinking, my God, I better get that other bone that other dog has so I can not be so hungry tomorrow, right? So he tries to get that other, other bone. Well, is he greedy or just trying to sort of preserve himself? Right. And uh, so I play several uh, versions of those clips, and they're, they're all labeled the Aesop's Fables. And then I play the clip from Wall Street um, with Michael oh, uh, yes. Douglas, yes, where yes, D- yes. Michael Douglas gets up and says, he says, you know, you guys are all wrong. He says, let me just tell you, you know, that uh, that, that greed is good. Greed is life. Greed is, you know, and he gives the whole um, <clears throat> other side of greed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I had a um, what do you, wait, 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 what do you think of that? Yeah. What's your take on that? Well, it, because, because, um, <laughs> because he has a point yeah. and that, that, that speech that Michael Douglas gave in that film, it actually comes from an economist whose name is, I, I can't uh, remember now. I have it in my, in my notes. It actually was a speech given by a famous economist back in I forget when. So that was that was uh, like stolen from that that speech. <laughs> I think it wasn't acknowledged. I don't know whether it was acknowledged or not, but certainly in the movie it wasn't acknowledged. Right. It was acknowledged that this guy, this character in the film, said that. Yeah. Um, so it gets complicated when we get out in the world because. Um, and then I had a, a quote from uh, Jeffrey West, who is a, um, um, a physicist who wrote a, a, has a book called, uh, called Scale. Uh, who, Jeffrey West, who was also the husband of uh, Jacqueline West, who oh, is, is my he? friend who, okay. who lives in Santa Fe. Yeah. His, in his book Scale, he talks about how greed is... Inextricably entwined in 
the drive for economic growth and economic and innovation and innovation and economic growth and the growth of uh, of inventions and uh, and technology and all of that that they're all intertwined and you can't pick them apart and how it's how this is the kind of conundrum that we're in today yeah see there's always another side that's right and so um it's a, it's a very complicated topic that um that that that's why I kind of put this kind of painful paradox of greed around the whole thing is because it's painful because you can't find a way a comfortable way out out of it or through it or to resolve it you have to live yeah. with it and that's bringing it back to my topic of of developing consciousness is that my whole idea is that what, if consciousness can evolve to another significant level then we can see we will more easily see in the here and now the consequences of what we're doing that we will see that if we continue to frack earth frack the earth to extract you know gas and so on the consequences of it will be more readily available and our our fear of not having enough our our anxieties about having enough and uh, and not having enough supplies will not blind us to the consequences of what we what we're doing to ourselves uh to the earth to our resources that's if we can get there that's if we can you know we can evolve enough before we kill ourselves and and ruin the planet yeah and this is a good example of what i was saying earlier about how my jungian analysis helped me look at things differently, you know, see that there's always another side and not right. Because when I had posted, here's an example, when I had posted on Facebook, um, about this episode, and one of the topics was your lecture, the paradox of greed, somebody commented under the post just and just said, I hate greed. And Typically, when somebody comments on, on one of my posts, I'll just hit the thumbs up as an acknowledgement that, you know, I appreciate people reading my posts and, and I appreciate people sharing their thoughts with me. And so usually I just hit the thumbs up as an acknowledgement that I saw it and I read it and thank you. And I didn't want to hit the thumbs up on that because I thought, well, will that be interpreted as me agreeing with him that I hate greed, because I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't say, oh, I hate greed, and greed is bad, and I'm not greedy. Mm -hmm. And again, it was my analysis that taught me, well, you know, I, I have it all, I'm capable of all of it. And I am all those things. And mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, what I do with it, that that's up to me. Mm -hmm. So we need to wrap it up. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if there was anything that we haven't covered that you have that you'd like to say? Uh, no, I think we've covered way more than I thought we'd be able to in this time. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually pleased. And I hope that we've covered um, uh, what you hoped we would cover too. We did cover a lot and I do appreciate it. I'd like to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Power please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. 
There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your shows. I've created a new YouTube channel where I occasionally stream a live vlog. If you're interested in watching, please subscribe to the channel. It's free. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook for daily updates. Links to all of my social media accounts can be found at speakingofjung.com. So with special thanks to all of those who brought analytical psychology to the United States, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.